You're listening to episode three of the Leaside Lives podcast. I'm Jordan and my guest today is writer Danny Denton. Uh, He released his debut novel uh, two years almost to the day, two years ago almost to the day, The Early King and The Kid in Yellow. And he's uh, going to talk about that, uh, his writer in residence role at UCC uh, and more over the course of the podcast. So Danny, thanks for uh, taking time over and thanks for inviting me into your office this afternoon. Uh, No problem. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to talk about it. The Early King and The Kid in Yellow, I recently read it and um, really enjoyed it. It was totally different to anything I'd read before. It's uh, set in an alternate Ireland where it's always raining. It's essentially a thriller told in a really original format, uh, it's, it's fair to say. I mean, there are ele- elements of uh, theatre, poetry, barstool chatter, shall we say. Um, and The Kid in Yellow is the central character. He's been a runner for The, for the King. He has uh, taken the baba away, the baby he had with the king's daughter, T, who sadly died in uh, childbirth. And uh, the kid is on a journey. He's in search of a moving statue. And uh, he's made the ki- king very angry. And uh, chaos unfolds. Talk to me about the, the journey from idea to novel. Like, What was it like for you? Uh, it was well it was everything it was uh, difficult brilliant bewildering um, thoroughly enjoyable absolutely miserable Um, I suppose a a bit of context would be that I had written a whole other novel before this one um, and I've been trying to get it published for uh, um, a few years maybe three years four years something like that and and it was written in a very different style, and it was maybe I was uh, kind of restraining myself a bit, trying to sound, trying to be literary and things like that, and trying to sound like particular people that I thought were good. Um, and so, and I kind of, on a, at a particular moment, more or less, I kind of gave up on that novel. I kind of realized it was never going to happen. Everybody that I would have wanted to publish it had said no at this point. Nobody had any interest in it, really, or in me. Um, and so there's a kind of a moment uh, at which I kind of said, right, maybe I should just kind of pack it in or whatever. Um, and yet at the same time, I was having this idea about something completely different that I might try and do. And I just said I'd write just for myself, uh, write for fun. I got a bit of advice from from a very uh, cool person who kind of said, when you write a book, you should write the book that you uh, want to read and nothing else, nothing more. Um, and uh, so I just started playing with this idea um, of uh, a story set in a kind of very rainy world. I li- I, I like the rain. Um, I like science fiction, um, particularly science fiction movies. Um, and uh, this isn't. I don't think this is science fiction, but certainly there's an influence there. And so I kind of was f- just playing with this world. I'm writing kind of little short stories set in this world and. And then, uh, and I was just enjoying that. And then I kind of had an idea. Well, I didn't have an idea. I discovered this thing and I couldn't stop thinking about it, which was I saw um, on the cover of a magazine, like a kind of a trashy magazine, uh, that a 12 year old boy had become a dad. Okay. And I was like, oh, um, that's com- it was just completely intriguing to me. Um, so I said, well, I'll, I'll do a kid. Um, a 12 year old kid or a 13 year old kid in my rainy world and I'll see what happens to him he's found out he's going to become a dad and what might happen and blah, blah. And then the book just uh, kind of came out of that it was a lot of like I, I didn't write it all in one go I, I wrote about 80 pages of it and then realised it was in the wrong from the wrong perspective I needed to write it from a different perspective there were lots of false starts and, and it was again it was probably four years was it four years in the writing maybe Whoa. Um, definitely, th- definitely three full years in the writing, and a bit like a lot of kind of messing about in it for a year as well. 
Um, I guess there had been a decade of writing before that as well. Yeah, yeah, there had. I probably started writing in... Um, started writing seriously for publication probably in 2005. So, yeah, that's all... Not quite a decade, but nine years writing. And I had had some stories published and things. Um, but yeah, so I just... It kind of... I worked on it and worked on it and worked on it and had lots of different. There were there there were seven drafts of this of this novel. Um, definitely, the, each of the first four were very different from the one before them, and then from four on, it kind of had settled into a shape, and it was about refining it. But um, yeah, and it was like there's loads when there's still passages I cut out about. Mm, I cut out at least fifty pages, and I still think of them very fondly. Like they're now they're now just sitting on a computer, no one will ever get to read them, bar me, really. Um, but I still think of them like, oh, I love that bit and love that bit, and and then there are bits I just find like when I have to read it again, I find absolutely like, oh, that was a dud bit, like or whatever, okay. and things like that. What was the most satisfying thing of it all? Was it you know writing the ending? Was it seeing the book on the bookshelf? Was it being nominated for the the Irish Book Awards at the end of twenty eighteen? It wasn't being nominated for the Irish Book Awards. Uh, I I don't have any interest in awards to be honest, but. It was, uh, I can tell you definitely, you'd think, I I always imagined it would be when I got the, the book contract. So when I got a phone call from my agent saying, we have an offer and we're, do you want to accept it? And I would say, yes, I want to accept it. I always thought it would be that. And that was a brilliant moment. Uh, I was kind of, I think we, we had just moved back to Ireland. Uh, my wife and I had just moved back to Ireland, I think a week before or two weeks before, after a long time abroad. And uh, we were staying with my dad. We didn't have anywhere to live at the time. So we were staying with my dad. I remember kind of dancing around my dad's kitchen because I was on my own in the house all day. Obviously, everyone else had a job, but I was I was supposed to be writing. Um, but actually, the best moment, the most satisfying moment was someone advised me at some point said, if you ever get a book, uh, bring out a book, go and see it printed. When it's being printed, ask if, if the publisher, if they'll bring you um, to see it printed by the printer. So I asked Granta and they were more than happy to bring me, even though they don't print it, it gets printed out in the middle of nowhere in kind of, um, in that kind of horrible Tory uh, belt around London. There's somewhere there, one of those towns and there's loads of big industrial estates and they print it there. So they took me to the printers and it's just this gigantic factory and you see they kind of time it so that you rock up and you get a tour of the factory and you get to see all these other books being printed and then it just so happens your book comes flying off the conveyor belt so myself, um, the production manager, and uh, who else went? The publicist, I think. Uh, we all went. We put on our uh, high-vis uh, vests and our hard hats, and we went around the factory, and we saw it coming off, and that was the best the best feeling in the world. Um, uh, since had a well, my wife and I since had a baby, she had the baby, I was there. That's now the best feeling in the world, but it's yeah, just yeah, so having sure. the book on there was the second best feeling in the world. But it was absolutely amazing, and it was like it was getting it was flying off this conveyor belt, and then Harry Potter was on a pallet next to the conveyor belt. Loads of like millions of pallets of Harry Potter. George Saunders had just won the book award, the Booker Award, so the Booker Prize. So there were like loads of pallets of George Saunders, and then my thing was just shooting off onto one single pallet <laughs> in the middle of all those pallets. That was definitely the most satisfactory. Amazing. And congratulations. And congratulations on becoming a dad as well in, in 2019. Andy, congratulations on being uh, named writer in residence here at UCC in Cork. Yes, you are a Cork man, Danny. You're from Passage West yeah. originally. Um, how has the role been so far at UCC? I have loved it. I have absolutely loved it. 
um, semester. So the job is kind of 50-50. You're supposed to spend 50% of your time writing and 50% of your time teaching. And the Arts Council is kind of in partnership with the Arts Council. The Arts Council and UCC are very strong on that, that you are here to write as well as to teach. Um, so I have been writing. I've been trying to finish my second novel. But I've been teaching. In semester one, I teach kind of, I taught a kind of a university-wide um workshop so anyone can do it staff or students they have to kind of all send in um, a piece of writing and then we pick kind of a smallish number like 12 or 13 people um, and we work every Thursday night we workshop each other's work we, we learn about the craft of fiction and stuff like that so we did that in semester one and it was just brilliant I just love working with love working with kind of new writers I don't want to say young people because not every you know different ages and things like that but um working with new writers uh, who are full of enthusiasm in a university environment is just joyful like every week was joyful I looked forward to it every week and I was sad when it ended and I was kind of thinking well, should I try and continue it but the workload then becomes too much because in this semester we're just at, um, we're just at the very start of this semester I'm going to be teaching the MA in writing in UCC or on the MA in writing in UCC so that's kind of a different type of class um, it's more kind of um, you know they're all paying to be there for a start lots of money to do an MA in Ireland uh, so they're paying to be there. They'll be grading up the work. They're working towards something specific. So that's going to be kind of a different challenge, but I'm really looking forward to that as well. That sounds exciting. And I, I noticed a poster on the way in today as well about the Quarryman. So that's returned as well. That's the literary journal at UCC. Does your role entail working on that? or No, no, I have nothing to do with the Quarryman. Um, that's very much a student-led thing, but it's a brilliant thing. Uh, I had the pleasure of uh, kind of helping to launch it um, two years ago. Um, and I'll certainly be recommending it to my students, particularly the students I worked with. Uh, well, actually, all the students I work with this year, trying to get trying to get them to submit to it and things like that. But um, I, it's a student-led thing, so they don't want to hear yes. from me. Well, that can only be a good thing that the Quarryman is is going uh, well back again, and um, I'm sure they will be onto you for advice. Danny, you've been modest. The Cork literary scene. I mean, it seems to be very strong at the moment, uh, really vibrant. Um, there's yourself obviously Catherine Corwin had Darkest Truth last year I know she's a, a Waterford woman originally but she's living in Cork so I think we can claim her now um, there's Cornel Creedon um, there's Ty Coakley as well who's written some magnificent sporting material in the Irish Examiner and he did his own novel uh, he did his own work published as well in recent years um, what are your thoughts on all the Cork literary scene at the moment? Uh, I don't like it's, in, it's an interesting question because you kind of would think then that there's something in the water in Cork or something like that. But actually, I think when I go to... I spent a lot of time in Galway at the early part of 2018 uh, teaching in, the, in NUIG. There's loads of brilliant writers there. You've got Anna McMonagall, Elaine Feeney, Elaine Cosgrove, Nicole Flattery. Loads of brilliant writers there. Same in Dublin. So I think it's probably a more generally Irish thing. And I think that... I'm inclined to say that it comes out of... A recession that people kind of um, that there's something I don't really know exactly what it is. There's a number of things. It could be it could be people returning to uh, feeling free, like having no money means that you can do what you like in a sense. Like you, it's not as it's not as big a leap. It's not as much of a sacrifice to spend hours and hours writing things when you could be out. You know, I don't know, earning money or something. Mm-hmm. Um, or there isn't the same temptations when there's not that much around. Or maybe it's a it could that could be it it could be something to do with the experience of hardship and it kind of people are living more uh, vital lives at that point when you're when you're experiencing hardship you are i think more alive um and therefore you have more to write about um 
I don't know really. It could just be that the publishing industry in, in England and in London has kind of turned its head towards Ireland because of a particular price. So, for example, the success of Ema McBride or Mike McCormack, they both won prizes um, in kind of a few years ago and all of a sudden people are interested in Irish writers. Um, but I would, I would say about Cork, it, it's absolutely brilliant to live in Cork and to experience that kind of thing, like fiction at the Friary. I live yeah. right, right near the Friary um, on Northgate Bridge, and you can go to that once a month, and it's fantastic. Uh, O'Vale in the Long Valley, the Poetry Night is brilliant. UCC is increasingly putting things on, um, and Cork City Library, Cork County Library. There seems to be a literary facet to kind of a lot of these different places now, and it's really brilliant. And there, like you say, there are loads of not only really strong writers around, but really interesting writers, you know, like these people are doing really interesting things. There are other people, Ema Ryan is a fantastic writer um, and editor of Banshee Literary Journal and she's around and there, things are always happening. Pat Cotter puts on the Poetry Festival, the Short Story Festival, and they're both those, they're, that, the programming for those is second to none in mm-hmm. the country and the ticket prices are about a quarter of everywhere else in the country. So that's, we're so lucky to have those two festivals and maybe that's a Cork spirit thing that these people all hang around and get on. You mentioned Ty Coakley. I bumped into him uh, on New Year's Day, went for a walk down Carragahan Strait along the Lee um, and uh, bumped into Ty and um, his partner Kira. And it was just such a pleasure to see, you know, uh, I lived in London for a long time and you would you go a year without meeting another kind of kindred spirit, whereas in Cork it seems to just happen. And the fact that I am, uh, I like literature and I like to read and I get to bump into these brilliant writers is just... Fantastic, and I understand um, that Lee Side is going to feature in your second novel as well. And mm. um, very strong radio theme to it. My background is in radio, so I'm interested to hear more about that. Like, um, <laughs> I mean, it's something of a cliche going into um, a second album when a band has a, a huge, you know, a number one album as their debut album. I mean, how have you found it so far? Um, I didn't have a number one <laughs> album for a start. Uh, the critical reception for the Early King was very good, and that was fantastic and the sales i don't think it would they were very good which doesn't bother me too much but it it certainly doesn't put up pressure i don't have sally rooney level pressure on me or anything like that um and i think one of the things because this was the novel that got published and the advice that i got was to write the book i'd want to read i feel very free about it and because it's not a best-selling type of literature it's like um, this will never be number one, right? I don't think well, I can't envisage a scenario where lots of people would want to buy this book, no matter how good or bad. It just doesn't appeal to lots of people. The, the first book I'm talking about. Okay. So because I don't have that kind of pressure on me, I'm not like One Direction and people are waiting on it. It means I, I feel a bit freer, and I'm, I'm quite happy with that. I would be quite happy to earn lots of money from book sales as well. <laughs> but yeah. I'm really happy that I have this kind of um, I can do whatever I want. And, and like you, like you've kind of alluded to, the new novel is completely different. So the first novel is kind of dystopian. It's set in an alternative Ireland uh, where it rains all the time and it, most things are flooded. Now that's not that alternative at times yeah. here in parts of the country. But um, the second novel is set in Cork. The Friary features, Facebook features, so it's a very regular real world. Um, It's very hard to talk about exactly because I I haven't even, even though I'm nearly finished it, I still don't quite know exactly what what it's supposed to be. But um, there is, um, it, it, it takes the form of a radio talk show and some parts it's divided between 
sections that are off air and sections that are on air. So you hear lots of people phoning into this radio talk show. Um, imagine PJ Coogan is the opinion line or Neil Prendival or whatever you like, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, people ringing up, complaining about sewage, um, um, complaining about uh, dog shit on the pavements and things like that, uh, or telling funny stories or trying to make Cork a better place or being racist, right, which you hear all, all of the, the thing I, the, I used to hate those radio shows growing up. They were always on in our house, particularly Neil Prendival. I hated the shows. It just couldn't I prefer to listen to white noise um, and then after being away for a long time I kind of accidentally discovered it um, PJ Coogan in particular I accidentally discovered PJ Coogan uh, who was a brilliant brilliant um, I don't know if you broadcaster is the correct term um, but a brilliant practitioner and I discovered that I was away I was kind of not exactly missing home but I was Missing the speech of home. I was missing the way people talk to each other here. I was missing the way people treat each other here. I was missing just the accents, the various Cork accents or Irish accents even. Uh, and so I kind of got very quickly obsessed with this radio show and realised that I would love to write something like that where in three hours you can have like a million different stories, perspectives. You can cover ten different issues. They could be big issues, small issues, serious, funny, heartbreaking um, complete mysteries, um, very politically frustrating. Like only yesterday, we had it on yesterday, there was this idiot on talking about uh, cows not um, experiencing any emotions for their calves or whatever. And like, I was like, you know, feeling viscerally angry at the radio, but yet I had it like, where else can you can you experience those kind of emotions? Um, and then two minutes later, someone talking about something else, you're like, oh my God, that just breaks my heart. That's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he managed, and Coogan manages it perfectly. I think that's a really intriguing um, feat to be able to be all those different types of person that a radio broadcaster has to be, depending on who you're talking to. Um, and uh, so I, I just became fascinated. And, and, and again, a project I was working on, it just wrote itself. I had a character in a piece who was obsessed with listening to the radio, and that was all it was going to be. Um, and then the piece developed. Now the character's not even in it anymore. It's just all the radio. And then things happen off air, and that kind of looks at kind of adds perspective and stuff. So I suppose that's how it came about, and that's kind of what it is in general. But as to kind of what the plot is and what the message is, I'm not exactly either. Either I'm not sure, or I don't want to say because I, it'll kill me. Okay, it'll well, kill the project. We look forward to it. Um, I'm sure it'll be probably 2021 release date. I have no idea. I have no idea. I, a, I have to finish it. B, the publisher has to want it. Okay. <laughs> and then C, they have to decide when they want to publish it. So it won't. I, I tell you one thing. I don't think it'll be 2021 because lead-in time seems to be very long these days. So 2022 at the earliest. Although I hope to finish it in the next month. So we'll see. Okay. Well, best of luck with it. Um, what about your writing routine? Like, is it is it an everyday thing? Is it early morning? I know, I think Dan Brown gets out of bed at like 4am or something, does his push-ups and then goes down to the basement <laughs> and types for the day. What what do you do? Dan Brown and Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. Uh, um, I believe that uh, writing is a craft and, um, and a trade. And I believe it should be, for, my personal belief for myself is that it should be, I should treat it like a trade. So... I have always, even when I've had to do other full-time jobs, which I had to up until 2018, I was always working full-time jobs. I get up every day, Monday to Friday, and I write. Um, It used to be for like two hours or an hour, depending on the job I had and whether I had to work overtime. And I would write in the morning for an hour or two hours, in the evening for an hour or two hours. Um, 
nowadays as a f- kind of I say I'm a full time writer, but there's no such thing. Dan Brown is probably a full time writer, but when you're kind of at my level in terms of being emerging and not really earning money from your books, bar the contract, the early contract or whatever, um, you are you are always teaching or you're moderating events or you're a freelance journalist writing reviews or you're doing a day job or something. But so, but. I would call myself a full-time writer because my my main focus is writing fiction now and I teach as well um, and I edit The Stinging Fly as well. Um, but uh, writing full-time, I get to be a bit more flexible in that, but I still would I would still kind of be looking at not much more than five hours of writing a day and usually broken into two parts. Okay. Um, I write longhand, uh, which I think isn't that fashionable anymore. Um, so I write longhand and then later, sometime later, I type things up. Um, and then I usually try and keep those parts. So in the morning, say I would, if I'm writing, if I'm drafting, I would be writing longhand, and then the afternoon session might be editing the work or something like that. You've worked with a lot of writers groups um, in recent times. You were obviously a writer in residence for the Cork Library as well for a yeah. while. So um, you worked with groups in Yall and Middleton and all around the county. And as an editor of the Singing Fly, you would have had to deal with hundreds yeah. of submissions. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed your editor's note in the the summer edition of the Stinging Fly last year where you spoke about the Brotigan Library in Washington. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is a library for a lot of uh, unpublished manuscripts. Was there a message in that? Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, there was a message in that. The message, I think, is that... Well, to, to expand a little bit on the Brotigan Library, so the, Richard Brotigan is a brilliant American writer. He wrote a book called The Abortion about a librarian who works in a library... And all that the library only accepts unpublished manuscripts. Yes. So what happens is the writer turns up to the library, and the library is open. It's a kind of a speculative piece. The writer, the library is open twenty four hours a day, three hundred sixty five days a year. The librarian sleeps in the library, and any at any time someone rings the bell, he opens the door, he accepts the manuscript. They place it on the shelf uh, in a, in the category they think fits the unpublished work best, and he, he just makes a little note as to the author's name. And people can come, you can never check anything out, but you can read whatever you want in the Brodigan Library. This is in a, in a novel called The Abortion. And then someone, some reader, some lover of Richard Brodigan said, I'm going to make this a reality and made it a reality. And I think it no longer, it's now housed in a, the library of a university. It's no longer a person because you couldn't, you don't make any money out of it. Um, uh, and so that was the story of the Brodigan Library. And I think there, it was just in my head because... We got to that to that summer issue of this thing in fly. We got about a thousand submissions, and you can publish uh, all fiction. I should say there were there were another six hundred poetry submissions, um, but you can only publish about fifteen, fourteen, fifteen stories. So fourteen, fifteen stories out of a thousand, it just doesn't do justice to the amount of work people put into their fiction and the passion they put into their fiction. And I know it's only one magazine. It's not like it's the only magazine on earth that can publish things, but it's just that looking at that kind of scale I kind of felt I felt a lot of love for the unpublished manuscripts or the unpublished stories and a lot of the unpublished stories were really 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 good um and even when they weren't maybe particularly brilliant the sentences might not have been perfect or the story might have been kind of felt unfinished in a drafting kind of sense they still contain these amazing ideas um and like that shouldn't it's just such a it's a kind of a shame but it's also kind of it's like a beautiful shame that those things kind of don't get their audience or whatever that they're living in people's heads and that there are thousands of writers walking around the various countries on earth having these brilliant ideas and putting them out on paper and no one really gets to 
they don't get not everyone gets to access them um so I, I guess it was just kind of a uh, to acknowledge that it, all you can do is really acknowledge it because I don't want to say like this is dedicated to all the people we didn't publish right <laughs> that's a bit horrible <laughs> but you know what I mean it's sure, like yeah. it, it is to acknowledge all these kind of Thomas Morris the, the brilliant Welsh writer refers to writing like these writing a short story as an act of love so all these acts of love occurring and not being acknowledged so I think that was probably the message what advice would you have for aspiring writers or writers who haven't yet been published write the book that you would want to read um, or write the story that you would want to read. Um, uh, from like, I think with the, I would never have, I haven't gotten that far. But as far as I've gotten, I would never have gotten this far without treating it like a, like a job, like a vocation, like working really hard at it. Um, never send out a first draft. Like work on your fiction, and then something like this is kind of like the advice that because there are loads of different pieces of advice, and they work for some people and don't work for others. So there's no like, you know, it's not like um, I don't know. It's not like um, it's not like uh, a chef's advice where you can say like never set yourself on fire, right? Um, like there, some things will work. Some writers have to set themselves on fire to write something good. So. Um, it's hard to give some that kind of advice, but something that uh, was really useful for me and kind of really dramatically improved my work, I think, was when you finish a draft of something, a story or a novel, put it away for a certain amount of time and just forget about it or try to forget about it and then come back. So for if I write a short story, wherever possible, unless I'm on, under pressure for a very short kind of turnaround commission, I'll put it away for a month at least. And whenever I write a draft of a novel, I put that away for three months at least. And I just don't do anything with it. I don't send it out. I don't give it to anyone. And when I come back three months later, I'm such a better judge of whether the sentences are right, whether the movement is good, um, and, all, and where I can make it better and stuff. I'm much much better judge after three months than I am after a week or something like that. Okay. So that's a piece of advice that massively improved my work, but it might not work for everyone. Interesting. Um, I won't ask you for your favorite book, but what book do you feel is a book you've enjoyed that is underrated, neglected, so to speak? Uh, a few. So you mentioned um, Ty Coakley. His book... Um, the third Sunday, or last Sunday in September. Last Sunday in September yeah. uh, with Mercier Press. I read that, loved it, and expected it to kind of take over the country for a year, and it didn't. Um so I would recommend anyone interested in fiction, especially anyone interested in sport and fiction, to read that. Um, there is... God, there are loads, actually. Um, Thomas Morris, who I just mentioned, uh, he has a, a collection of short stories called We Don't Know What We're Doing. That's a fantastic collection. Uh, I'm not sure how much praise or not it got when it came out because I was kind of not thinking about that kind of stuff then. Um, and... Um, well, my two, I'll, I'll say my two favourite books. Um, they are um, Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace and Ridley Walker by Russell Hoban. Uh, I won't, don't need to elaborate too much because you'll look at them and decide whether they're for you or not. Okay. Um, but then is there something I'm trying to think? I had something in my head recently. I was like, that book, uh, people should really talk more about that book um, or that writer. Um, it was... Um, Anne Carson, Red Dock. It's a novel in verse, um, and it's a really, really moving um, piece of work. And it's kind of you—you you don't know whether to make a head, head or tail of it for a lot, of, lot of it. But um, 
you come out of it with a feel. It's kind of like David Lynch. You come out of it with this really strong feeling, and you don't even know what exactly it is. But it's, it's well worth reading for that. I always like to ask the guests as well what what music album they're currently listening to, what band they've recently discovered, or what album has shaped their life. Um, what music do you listen to? What do you enjoy at the moment? I listen to all sorts. Um, I will say something that I'm listening to at the moment that I love is Richard Dawson's uh, new album, 2020. So Richard Dawson is a Newcastle um, kind of singer-songwriter. Um, um, but he uh, writes lyrics of characters that are just absolutely stunning. He's a brilliant song on, on this new album, 2020, called Two Halves, about a kind of an underage soccer match in Newcastle and the guy thinking the teenager guy or whatever thinking he's kind of let his dad down because he missed an open goal and he gave the ball away and the other team scored and they go home and the dad's just like don't let it get you down son it'll be fine do you want, do you want fish and chips or will we get a Chinese and it's just ah, it's just fantastic um, so I would recommend that album um, an album that I'm listening to that's not new and I'm listening to it over and over again lately I, I don't know if it's called an album if it's kind of classical music but a piece or a movement I don't know what to call it uh, score maybe I haven't a clue Johan Johansson has something uh, a piece called IBM oh what's it called IBM 401 a manual or something like that it's about the, it's, it's, it's the it's a piece of kind of very ambient classical music performed to someone reading out an instruction manual for an early IBM computer I'm not even sure if it's a computer, an IBM machine. Okay. It's hard, very hard to tell. It's very basic, but it's absolutely beautiful piece of music. Uh, I think it's called IBM 401 Emanuel, I think. But you're, if you look up Johan Johansson, IBM. You certainly have a, a broad range, broad taste in music. So I think in a recent interview, you mentioned Armin van Buren as well. Oh, yeah, the DJ. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's something different altogether, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? The Beckett, the Beckett, uh, the Beckett of, of dance music. <laughs> yeah, the one... I was, I do this. So I retired from GA uh, last year, and for the first time in my life, I kind of I'm not fit by default because I have played GA since since I was a sprog in passage, um, and for some, for some reason, so I started doing spinning classes right. uh, since I retired, and and this song came on the spinning class, and I I had to ask the instructor. I was like, there was a song there about halfway through. It was absolutely amazing. What was that? Because I, I was like, literally, I think like my my exercise bike was about to take off. I was pedaling so fast when this song was on. She was like, "Oh, that's Armin van Buren," and I was like, "Because Armin van Buren, like, I don't know if you're a similar age to me or a bit younger or what, but when I was going to the soccer club discos, van Buren was the man, like, and I'd forgotten all about, forgotten he existed because he kind of moved. I moved away from that kind of music. So I went back, and thanks to Spotify, you can just you can go down any kind of wormhole you want musically. So I was listening to Armin van Buren for a few days. Um, <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I've come across some of his uh, anthems in, in nightclubs down through the years. I think, anyway, I'm sure I have. Uh, finally, Danny, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Uh, what would you say makes you tick? Uh, people. It's a really glib answer, but it's the only thing. I can't think of anything else that, like, I, um, you know, uh, I have a family um, and I love being part of a family. Um I write books and I love writing books with the idea of sharing these kind of things with people. I love reading books because it's sharing, it's like telepathy, you know. Um, I love playing sport. I always love playing sport, probably more than anything. Not that I was that much good at it, but 
that's again you're with people all the time that team environment I don't think you know I think every human being should work in a team environment like that kind of whether they're good at sport or whether it's something else so probably I would say probably people and particularly uh, given the nature of the podcast Leaside Lives moving back to Cork after six or seven years away was really special because the people in Cork or you could say Ireland I don't know I've never really properly lived anywhere else in Ireland but the people here are just fantastic and and so, like, it's lovely to be in a kind of a daily environment where you might bump into someone on the street or just have an interaction with a complete stranger that's kind of really warm and, mm-hmm. you know, friendly and nice. So I would say probably people, yeah. Speaking of great Cork people, I noticed on the inside of the cover of The Early King and The Kid in Yellow, there's a review saying, what a book, absolutely marvellous. <laughs> Killian Murphy, is that the Peaky Blinders Killian Murphy? That's the, that's the Peaky Blinders really? Killian Murphy, yeah, yeah. He had some connection... To the um, to my editor, the editor of the book, Max Porter. Uh, actually, Killian was starring in Mac, in a play of Max Porter's novel. Max Porter wrote "Grief Is a Thing with Feathers." Killian was just absolutely amazing in the play of that book, and I guess Max must have given him the book and said, "Here's a fellow Carcolian or something like that." But that was like I used to. It was really weird. I used to kind of because Killian would be um, an artistic hero of mine. Like I've been watching him in movies. For many years, although he obviously doesn't look that old, he looks fantastic. But been watching him in movies for many years, and he's so brilliant at what he does. Watching him in plays, he's so brilliant at what he does. And to think he kind of comes from just down the road or whatever is fantastic. And I used to kind of, uh, you know, you fantasize about meeting your heroes. Or whatever. I used to fantasize about, well, what if Killian Murphy one day read my book or they made a movie of my book and Killian Murphy was in it? And I was literally more or less having a fancy like that. I used to always walk into work at some point, and I got a text off my editor with a text from Killian like forwarding on a text from Killian I was like I gotta I gotta like pinch myself here or something because this is completely bonkers but it was yeah that it was Killian and that was it was the Killian of Peaky Blinders yeah Excellent. that's special listen Danny thanks a million for speaking to us today thanks for your time and uh, we're going to close out I think with a, a passage from the book The Early King and The Kid in Yellow thank you no bother thank you very much thinking people like ye had theories about why it rained for so long without ever stopping. Some said that all life came from water and that a country that drenches itself in rain for hundreds of years is maybe trying to rebirth itself. It's probably true that things went very bad on our island and so maybe there's truth to what those people said. But for that to happen, a country has to have a mind and a spirit all of its own. And maybe that's true too. Maybe all I know is my own small part in it, that I was born near the capital and raised and lived most of the years of my life before I saw a break in the Irish cloud. The time I first saw sun with my own eyes and not on televisio is a day I can no longer talk about. But I'll tell you what else I can. So what you know about that drowned world, you know from scraps of information... Shreds of data, voices that vary, conflict, struggle to recall. I've water-stained photographs here, some other snippets of audiovisual stuff, a few papers. But it's all up here, in the head, the noggin. The digital catastrophe took almost everything from us, but it didn't take me.